0: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your compatriot, your compadre, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black, delighted, as always, to be with you. I think I have been saying you're Victorianologist, because I was doing that with uh, Jude the Obscure, But it occurs to me that that is not the case anymore. In fact, it's it's not the Victorian era. Because Queen Victoria came to the throne in 1837. This book is from 1818. So, in fact, this is the Georgian period. And I don't know what characterizes the Georgian period in particular, but that's where we are. So, I am your Georgianologist. Your Georgian. Oh heavens, I'm your Georgian. Would you like a peach? Can I have a slice of peach cobbler, Georgian? You can see that I am a master of accents. I've, de- I've demonstrated that time and time again. But here we are. We are in the Georgian era. And gosh, before I even start reading today, I feel like I should look up when King George... I'm going to open my research machine. When did King... George the second die uh eighteen twenty so we're at the tail end, oh no, I'm sorry, King George the oh, so this is the same George during the revolution. so that's uh. I don't know, that's that's queer in a way, right? That we can reach back and we're already kind of in the revolutionary era and it feels contemporary to me. I'm like I feel rooted to this book already just as I did to Jude the Obscure, but even more so, I, say, I think, because the language is so plain or plainer anyway than the Victorian language of Thomas Hardy. I don't know if that's characteristic of the Georgian era or what, but it does kind of put us in a historical framework, right? It's post-revolutionary England. And I don't know what the effects of losing the Americas, losing that colony was on the British psyche. I have no idea. You people are better informed about everything than I am. But I wonder how much of that seeped into the British consciousness, um, uh, in 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 the years following the revolution, the way let's say losing the Vietnam War seeped into the American consciousness in the decades following that fiasco. Like, how much does it change your national character? How much does it affect the art that you're making? I mean, these are big questions, and I'm sure there are whole treatises on the subject. Probably lots of PhDs have been awarded talking about this very subject and yet I don't know anything about it what an idiot I am God I didn't want to start today with self-flagellation but here I am beating myself up because I don't know the effects of the post-revolutionary era on British art in the early 19th century what a jacknape I am letter four. To Missus Savile, England, August fifth, seventeen 17-, Although we know that's a lie. Okay, so this is about a month after the third, uh, yeah, the third letter, which was just a little, a little text, basically, from Walton to his sister, saying, "I'm fine." <clears throat> so strange an accident has happened to us that I cannot forbear recording it, although it is very probable that you will see me before these papers can come into your possession. Finally, some tragedy. Finally. We've been waiting for pages and pages for Walton's voyage to ground, and it sounds like it has. Last Monday, July 31st, we were nearly surrounded by ice, which closed in the ship on all sides, scarcely leaving her the sea room In which she floated. Our situation was somewhat dangerous, especially as we were compassed round by a very thick fog. We accordingly lay to, hoping that some change would take place in the atmosphere and weather. Oh, we can just picture it the big wooden ship hemmed in on all sides by ice, the fog encircling it, creating a foreboding scene. I mean, this is the stuff of graphic novels. It's what I was talking about last time. It's so kind of eerie and dramatic. I love it. Folks, I love it. About two o'clock, the mist cleared away. And recall earlier in the last letter, he was quoting Coleridge and he was talking about the land of mist and snow. Well, it sounds like they have entered it. I mean, there is mist. There is snow. The mist cleared away and we beheld, stretched out in every direction, vast and irregular plains of ice, which seemed to have no end. Some of my comrades groaned, and my own mind began to grow watchful with anxious thoughts when a strange sight suddenly attracted our attention and diverted our solicitude from our own situations. We perceived a low carriage. Fixed on a sledge and drawn by dogs, pass on towards the north at the distance of half a mile. A being which had the shape of a man, but apparently of gigantic stature, sat in the sledge and guided the dogs. We watched the rapid progress of the traveler with our telescopes until he was lost among the distant inequalities. Of the ice. Ooh, spooky. Some spooky stuff. They're up there in the land of mist and snow, hemmed in by ice, no habitations, no settlements around. And what do they see? A giant figure mushing dogs across the ice. This appearance excited our unqualified wonder. We were, as we believed, many hundred miles from any land, but this apparition seemed to denote that it was not, in reality, so distant as we had supposed. Shut in, however, by ice, it was impossible to follow his track, which we had observed with the greatest attention. About two hours after this occurrence, we heard the ground C. And then a footnote. Oh, footnote, footnote. Here comes the footnote music. Here comes the delightful footnotes. da! da, da. Turning to the back, looking for my footnotes. Come on, footnotes. Come on. Ground sea. Uh, a heavy sea in which large waves rise and dash upon the coast without apparent cause. Well, wait a second. How does that make sense? About two hours after this occurrence, we heard the ground sea. And before night, the ice broke and freed our ship. So, okay, I get that there's a heavy scene which large waves rise and dash, but how is it upon the coast? There's no coast. He's in the middle of the ocean. Does, does she mean the coast of the ice sheets, which isn't a coast, it's just ice sheets? Is that what that means? I mean, why is there even a footnote there at all? Okay, we heard the ground, sea. All right, the the sea was grinding and grinding. Fine. Why is there a footnote about that? I mean, there's other things. I mean, look, if you're going to have a footnote, make it worth my while. Make it worth me thumbing to the back of the book, right? Make it worth me playing the thumbing to the back of the book music, and then to have it almost not make sense. Well, that's troubling. Maybe it's just this edition, the Penguin Classics edition. I mean, obviously it wasn't in the original edition. Penguin Classics do a better job. Do a better job, why don't you, Penguin Classics? And we're trying to read the Frankenstein. And before night, the ice broke and freed our ship. We, however, lay to until the morning, fearing to encounter in the dark those large, loose masses which float about after the breaking up of the ice. I profited of this time to rest for a few hours. In the morning, however, as soon as it was light, I went upon deck and found all the sailors, busy on one side of the vessel, apparently talking to someone in the sea— It was, in fact, a sledge, like that we had seen before, which had drifted towards us in the night on a large fragment of ice. Only one dog remained alive, but there was a human being within it. This has to be Frankenstein. This has to be Frankenstein. Have we met Frankenstein at long last? Walton is not Frankenstein, maybe, but is relating the tale of meeting Frankenstein, the friend whom he craves, the person who is going to change his life for ever. Frankenstein. Could it be? Only one dog remained alive, but there was a human being within it, whom the sailors were persuading to enter the vessel. He was not, as the other traveler seemed to be, a savage inhabitant of some undiscovered island, but a European. When I appeared on deck, the master said, here is our captain and he will not allow you to perish on the open sea. Is that the first time somebody has actually spoken in this book? I think it is. I think the master is the first person to actually speak, you know, in such that you would use quotations. And uh, so I've created the master's voice. Here is our captain and he will not allow you to perish on the open sea you know, remember the master's a kind man, on perceiving me, the stranger addressed me in English, oh, this is going to be Frankenstein, this is going to be Frankenstein, although with a foreign accent, it's going to be Frankenstein, it's going to be Frankenstein, it's going to be Frankenstein. <clears throat> so I need to figure out, addressed in English, although with a foreign accent. Before I come on board your vessel, said he, will you have the kindness to inform me whith- whither you are bound well, how is that as a Frankenstein? I mean, if I'm establishing a precedent for Frankenstein, is that all right? I think it's all right. You know, I'm giving him a kind of vaguely Germanish thing because that's all I'm capable of doing. Before I come on board your vessel, said he, will you have the kindness to inform me whether you are b- whither you are bound? You may conceive my astonishment on hearing such a question addressed to me from a man on the brink of destruction and to whom I should have supposed that my vessel would have been a resource which he would not have exchanged for the most precious wealth the earth can afford. Yeah, the guy's dying out there on the ice. Excuse me. The ship comes up, and he says, Yeah, I'm dying out here, but before I get on, where like, where are you guys going? Where are you heading? Astonishing indeed. I replied, however, that we were on a voyage of discovery towards the northern pole. Upon hearing this, he appeared satisfied and consented to come on board. Good God, Margaret, if you had seen the man who thus capitulated for his safety, your surprise would have been boundless. His limbs were nearly frozen and his body dreadfully emaciated by fatigue and suffering. I never saw a man in so wretched a condition. We attempted to carry him into the cabin, but as soon as he had quitted the fresh air, he fainted. We accordingly brought him back to the deck and restored him to animation by rubbing him with brandy and forcing him to swallow a small quantity. As soon as he showed signs of life, we wrapped him up in blankets and placed him near the chimney of the kitchen stove. By slow degrees, he recovered and ate a little soup, which restored him wonderfully. So, okay, we can forgive him a little bit by going, yeah, yeah. where where are you guys heading? Like, we can forgive him for that, because he was in shock, perhaps. I recall a similar moment from my own life when I was traveling with some friends in a rented van. This is in the early 90s when I was on a popular television program. My friends and I decided to rent a van and travel across the breadth of the country for the specific reason of exploring our newfound fame and seeing if that could translate into having sex with girls. I mean, we wanted to see the country too, don't get me wrong, but it seemed to us that this could be a good opportunity to have a lot of fun, take a vacation, and maybe, just maybe, have sex with girls. Well, I need not tell you, dear listener, that my own efforts at having sex with girls were unsuccessful. I mean, maybe I do need to tell you, unsuccessful. Uh, For a variety of reasons, my shyness, my lack of drinking, um, my own inhibitions and hangups about everything. But all that to say, we were driving from Austin, Texas to New Mexico. Late one night, we had been partying in Austin for a couple of days. We had been out. We had been eating barbecue. We decided to drive through the night. The other fellas had been drinking somewhat and uh, it was upon me to drive. I may be getting the details of this wrong a little bit. Because I wasn't the first guy to drive. So I guess, we hadn't, we, I guess they weren't drunk. Or maybe two of them were and one of them wasn't. Whatever. I wasn't the first to pilot the van that evening. But late or early, early, early around dawn, it was my turn to drive. I had been sleeping. I got into the pilot's chair. I began driving. I began hallucinating uh, from fatigue. I drove off the road. With the van on cruise control set at 75 miles an hour, I awoke to hear screaming, high-pitched, high-pitched, prepubescent girl-type screaming, and very quickly discovered that the screaming was my own as we plowed through fields somewhere in Texas. Um, I was screaming at the top of my lungs as the van went hiddly-diddle-dee across the field uh, before coming to rest on the far end of a concrete embankment into which we had crashed. My friends were jostled about. One friend flew over his seat and crashed into the front windshield and hit his back on the cigarette lighter as he came down. The van was largely demolished in its front end, but we were all more or less okay, banged up, but nothing serious. As I got out of the van to inspect the damage, I was in such shock that I looked at the crumpled front end of the van and keep in mind, it was crumpled. Turn back to my friends and said, I think it's fine. I think it's fine. And then I could see on the distant highway that we had driven off, car had slowed to a stop because he had seen us drive off the road. And I saw a figure get out and walk over to the side of the road. And in a very chipper voice, I remember reaching up my hand and waving to the person and saying, morning. So I have some empathy, for dr frankenstein who that i assume that this is finding himself looking up at a ship looking up at his own salvation and questioning where the ship is heading before he agreed to get on board we do we do and say dumb things all the time when we are not ourselves And now let's take a little break. Back in obscure, let's read on. Two days passed in this manner before he was able to speak and I often feared that his sufferings had deprived him of understanding. When he had in some measure recovered, I removed him to my own cabin and attended on him as much as my duty would permit. I never saw a more interesting creature. His eyes have generally an expression of wildness and even madness, but there are moments when, if anyone performs an act of kindness towards him, or does him any the most trifling service. His whole countenance is lighted up, as it were, with a beam of benevolence and sweetness that I never saw equaled. Hi, Disney's. <sighs> ah! <sighs> Fall allergies, perhaps. A capper to my season of woe. If you recall last episode, I have contracted a contact dermatitis— which seems to be getting somewhat better, but it is better, but it's still itchy and the scalding water treatment does not work nearly as well. It does not provide the same endorphin rush as it did when the rash was fresh. It makes me almost miss the contact dermatitis. but It's not gone, but, it, but it's, it's getting better. But he is generally melancholy and despairing, And sometimes he gnashes his teeth, as if impatient of the weight of woes that oppresses him. When my guest was a little recovered, I had great trouble to keep off the men who wished to ask him a thousand questions, but I would not allow him to be tormented by their idle curiosity in a state of body and mind whose restoration evidently depended upon entire repose." Once, however, the lieutenant asked why he had come so far upon the ice in so strange a vehicle. His countenance instantly assumed an aspect of the deepest gloom, and he replied, to seek one who fled from me. And did the man whom you pursued travel in the same fashion? Yes. Then I fancy we've seen him. For the day before we picked you up, we saw some dogs drawing a sledge with a man in it across the ice. I don't know my lieutenant is uh, who's my lieutenant? I mean, look, first of all, he he would be British, but I don't want to do the I don't want to do British accents, but he's a little Edgar G. Robinson, but not. Then I fancy we have seen him. Now maybe I just shouldn't do a character for him at all. Then I fancy we have seen him for the day before we picked you up. We saw some dogs drawing a sledge with a man in it across the ice. So yeah, I think we can all assume at this point that the man we saw on the sledge, the giant, was the creature, right? But already it's a surprise for me because in my mind, the creature of old, the Boris Karloff creature, wouldn't be capable of of drawing a sledge and mushing dogs across the ice. It didn't seem like he had that kind of intellectual capability, if indeed that is who we saw going across the ice. And Dr. Frankenstein, and at this point I think it's safe to assume that's who it is, may or may not have been chasing him. I mean, uh, what is he chasing, right? What is the creature that he is chasing? What is its nature? That's what we are here to determine. Because again, look, man versus nature, baby. That's what it's all about. He is chasing nature, or perhaps in this case, unnature, Abnormality. I mean, abnormality, I guess, isn't unnatural. It's just not normal. You know, normal is boring. I mean, normal is not boring. Normal is lovely. Abnormal is lovely. It's all lovely until it's an abomination that wants to destroy you. Then it's not as lovely. But the thing's fleeing. You know, it's a giant. It seems like it could have destroyed Frankenstein, but it didn't. It's fleeing. So they say, the, uh, the lieutenant says, yeah, we saw him. He was a man in it. He's going across the ice. This aroused the stranger's attention, and he asked a multitude of questions concerning the route, which the daemon, oh, interesting. They're using the word daemon, as he called him, had pursued. So Frankenstein is calling him a daemon, D-A-E-M-O-N. I want to say demon, but it's daemon. Uh, I'm just going to look up the definition on my research machine here just to make sure that it's im, that it's no different than demon. So, oh, okay, interesting. Oh, you know, thank God for these research machines. You know, you plug in a question and they give you an answer. And it is pronounced demon, D with a long E, M, and then a schwa, which is an up, up, upside down E, N. So let me just hear the pronunciation because they've got it here. Demon. Demon. I mean, it almost sounds like she's saying demon. It almost sounds like she's saying demon. But all right, I'm. Gonna, I guess I'm going to go with demon. Uh, so, in ancient Greek belief, a divinity or supernatural being of a nature between gods and humans. So, when we think of demons in the kind of modern usage of it, we think of them as inherently evil, right? We think of them as being servants of Satan. Um, But that's not what this definition is. A divinity or supernatural being of a nature between gods and humans, some intermediary state between us, us wretched folk crawling upon the earth and the exalted, something in between, neither good nor evil, there's no moral attachment to it. It is just something else, some other state of consciousness. So and that's what he's calling this thing. Now, it is also, definitionally, the archaic spelling of demon, which, you know what, I'm going to do, I'm going to go a little further on the internet research machine. I'm going to look up demon just to see if there's a, a, a difference an evil spirit or devil, especially one thought to possess a person or act as a tormentor in hell. So it's interesting. I mean, they're, they're different definitions and they have different implications. Um, now I feel like I need to look up the etymology of the word demon, which... So this is interesting. Hold on. Hold on, people. Just please stop. You're rushing me again. The word demon in its current spelling comes from the Latin demonium, which is a lesser or evil spirit, and demonian, which is from the Greek. So we're dealing with two similar but kind of different words, and the actual spelling D E M O N uh, actually dates from twelve. Hundred. So the word demon she would have known, and the word daemon she would have known. She chose daemon. Why? Did she do that because it was of the fashion and she really meant demon, the, the, the evil spirit, or did she mean the kind of otherworldly being? Regardless, what I think we're finding is that the demon. D a e m o n that he's talking about um, is something abnormal, something from beyond the realm of the uh, strictly natural. So concerning the route which the demon, at Damon, as he called him, had pursued, soon after, when he was alone with me, he said. I have doubtless excited your curiosity, as well as that of these good people, but you are too considerate to make inquiries. Certainly it would indeed be very impertinent and inhuman in me to trouble you with any inquisitiveness of mine. And yet you have rescued me from a strange and perilous situation. You have benevolently restored me to life. Ooh, that's kind of cool right? Walton, he's saying, has benevolently restored him to life, right? And we already know that Frankenstein has restored another to life, or rather he has <sighs> restored life to something. I mean, what a great place to end this week on this idea of restoring to life, the restoration of life. And what does that do to somebody? Once somebody or something has died, right? Passed from the natural world into the spirit world, made that journey, begun that journey from life, uh, of the human life, to the life of the spirit. That person, once restored, is that person then still, strictly speaking, human? Now, we understand that Frankenstein had not yet expired, but was on death's door, was having a kind of NDE, a near-death experience. He would not have survived were it not for the intrusion of Walton and his band of merry men. And then, when all hope was lost for Frankenstein, out of the mist comes his salvation in the form of Walton, who does in fact restore him with soup and brandy, and now Frankenstein finds himself in the same precarious position as the creature he himself has created. My word! What 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 a uh, what a what a kind of uh, a double reverse twist with a thing! It's a double reverse twist with a thing. That's the literary guys. Come on. I'm the literary mansplainer chief. That is the correct literary terminology for what is being described right now. Um, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop. We're gonna ruminate on that until the next episode. We have some irony. We have a double reverse twist with a thing. I wasn't expecting that so soon in the book, but here we are. I am all a tingle, and can't wait to find out more about Frankenstein on the next Georgian-era episode of Season 2 of Obscure, Frankenstein. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein, was produced by myself, Michael Ian Black, Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, and Mary Shimkin. It was recorded in the wilds of Connecticut at the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. Theme music by Craig Wedren. If you would like to support this podcast, please join us at patreon.com slash michael ian black this is a podcast that does not receive any outside funding other than the funding that you yourself give it so if you would like to support it please do patreon.com slash michael ian black